Good morning indeed. As Jeremiah declares in Lamentations 3.22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. Friends, if you are in Christ, you woke up this morning under God's amazing grace. And it is here in the church that we now gather around the throne of grace so that God might speak his tender words of mercy. So let's now turn our attention to his gracious word as we hear from Ephesians 2, verse 1 to 10. Now as we approach God's word, let's ask his help. Let's pray together. Father of mercy, we confess that your great love for us is in Christ alone. We acknowledge that it is only in him that we can find forgiveness and grace for all our sins. Lord, we thank you for sending your only son to bear our iniquity on the cross. And we ask now that your word would expose the horrific reality of our sin so that your grace might shine with the glory of heaven. Lord, we ask you to open the heavens and show us the splendor and majesty of your grace found in Christ. Lord, we ask you to open our eyes so that we might rightly know and comprehend the height and the width and the length and the depth of your love for us. May your word accomplish all of your purposes to sanctify us and to bring about salvation for those who remain in their sin. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> Let's now turn to Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, verse 1 to 10. Hear now the gracious words of your Savior. And you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. Walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> now, one of the greatest memories of my life is spending a summer in the Himalayan mountains. One of the reasons was because we got to see the astounding beauty of that mountain range. While we traveled in Himachal Pradesh in India, we had to travel over the Rotong Pass, which at its peak is around 4,000 meters. 
Now, if you've ever traveled up a mountain, you know that you cannot go straight up. You have to go along the side. And it gives you breathtaking views of the rest of the mountain range. Now, the closer you get to the top of the mountain, the more and more you begin to realize just how small you are and how great that mountain really is. It's only when you stand on top of the mountain that you are truly able to comprehend its height and its breadth and length and depth. Now, friends, this is what Paul is doing when he wrote his letter to the Ephesian church. He is scaling the greatness of God's glorious grace towards his saints. Paul takes us to heaven itself so we might behold the glory and majesty of our inheritance in Christ. And he does this so we might take our minds and our eyes off of our cultural thinking and our worldly ways, just like the Ephesian church was struggling with. He wants us to behold the wondrous mystery of his grace so that we might live in a manner worthy of our calling. So in Ephesians 2, verse 1 to 10, Paul reveals three truths, three truths to help us behold the glory of God's grace. First, you must remember the wretchedness of your sin. Paul shows us the wretchedness of your sin. If you want to comprehend the riches of God's glory, you first need to know the bad news. Paul does this by revealing that sin corrupts completely. It brings death. It enslaves, and it condemns. So look at verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, Paul here begins this section by addressing the Ephesian church with that word you, that second plural you. And he's reminding them of their former spiritual state before they became a Christian. Now, we know this because of that past tense, you were dead. Now, who is the culprit of this murder? Why are they dead? Why were they dead, rather? Well, look at the text. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Sin is the reason that these Ephesians were dead. It's sin that killed their soul. And it's sin that kills yours. Paul uses this word trespasses and sins as a way to describe all sin. Now, what is sin? Well, the Westminster Catechism says, sin is a lack of conformity to or transgression of the law of God. Sin is a lack of conformity to or transgression of, a breaking of the law of God. It is an offense against a holy God. It is defiance and rebellion against him. So just think about our first parents, Adam and Eve. God created Adam and Eve, and he gave them life. Everything they enjoyed was from him. God gave them everlasting life, protection, provision, peace, and joy in his presence. Unending happiness in God's presence. And he only gave them one warning. Only one. We see this in Genesis 2, verse 16. He told Adam, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. 
For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And though Adam and Eve knew God's abundant, unending, unfathomable love, what did they do? They rejected God's word. They rejected his provision and love. And in rebellion, they stretched out their hands and took of the fruit. They believed the lie of the serpent and wanted to be like God himself. Friends, every time you sin, you are rejecting God and setting up an altar for yourself. Friends, you need to know that sin promises life. You can be like God. But it only can give you death, ruin, and misery. Sin is like a toxin. It's like this toxin botulium. Now, if it only takes one nanogram per, per kilogram of this toxin to kill a human. So let me put that in perspective. One gram of potulium is enough to kill around one million people. And sin is exceedingly more deadly. One rebellious thought, one doubt of God's character, one covetous desire, one lustful look, one angry word, one sin will corrupt your soul to the core. It is only one sinful act that pledged all of humanity under the sentence of death. Beloved, do you see sin in this way? No one keeps stuffing their mouth with poison berries once they realize what they're eating. But how easily we forget the deadliness of sin. How easily we are deceived and allured by its enticements. You must let God's word to wake you up, to show you its sinister plot. For instance, if you're tempted to lust, you need passages like Proverbs 5, verse 3. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. It looks pleasing. But in the end, she's bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. For in sins look, looks good in the moment, but it will kill you. It will kill your soul. These Ephesians before Christ were spiritually dead. They were spiritually dead. Now, notice in verse 1 what sin does to your soul when it kills you, when it makes you spiritually dead. We see two things. First, you are unable to do what God commands. When you are spiritually dead, you are unable to do what God commands. And we see that from that word dead when we think about it a little bit more. The word dead literally means lifeless. It's like a corpse. When you are dead, you have uh, no ability to do anything. So when was the last time you were at a funeral and you saw the dead man rise and give a, give a speech? A dead man cannot walk. dead man cannot a man, a dead man cannot breathe, he cannot feel, he cannot speak, he cannot shed a tear. A dead man cannot give a hug or say goodbye. A dead man cannot read a bedtime story or enjoy one last meal. The only thing a dead man can do is lie lifeless in the grave. And this, Paul says, was your spiritual condition apart from Christ. Before you were a Christian, you were spiritually dead. There was nothing good in you. 
You cannot see God's glory because you had no spiritual eyes to see. You cannot hear God's voice because you had no ears to hear. You cannot taste heaven's joys because you had no taste buds. You were dead. You were dead to the things of God like a rotting corpse buried in the ground. So the only thing you can do, you, you, are, un, sorry, you are unable to do a God's commands when you are dead spiritually, but you are also incapable of not sinning. So you cannot do what God commands, but also you are incapable of not sinning. Notice that word walk that Paul uses in verse 1. And you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. He uses this word walk to describe how you lived, how you conducted yourself every day. Before Christ, before you were a Christian, you walked actively in the trespasses and sins. The only thing you could do was sin. It was a part of your normal, everyday routine. You woke up, you brushed your teeth, you ate breakfast, and then took a stroll down Covetous Lane. You went to work, and you enjoyed a brisk walk in anger. You came home, and you finished the day with a good portion of lust. Sin was normal to you. It was like taking a walk in the park. All the while, your soul was decaying like a dead man. You made your bed in the comfort of your own grave. When you're spiritually dead, you cannot even smell the wretchedness and foul stench of your rotting corpse. The rotten, the rotten corpse of your sin. Beloved, before you were a Christian, you were dead to God and alive to sin. You were unable to obey God's commands and incapable of not sinning. This is what theologians call total depravity. Total depravity. Unable to do God's commands and incapable of not sinning. So first, you, as we're thinking about the wretchedness of our sin, you must remember its deadliness, your spiritual condition before you're a Christian. But you also must see sin's captivity. So look again at verse 1. And you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. When you were spiritually dead, you walked according to the course of this world. Now Paul uses this word world to describe the fallen world. He's talking about this present evil age. This is every single person who is united in their rebellion against God. It's like what we saw at the Tower of Babel. Paul's referring to every ruler in the UAE, every school teacher and coach in India, every engineer in Birmingham, Alabama, every housewife in Manila, every child in Nigeria, everyone who walks as enemies of the cross. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. And some were such as you. And such were some as you. You were in love with this present age. Your home was not in heaven. Your home was here on earth, in Babylon. You were in love with all the earthly pleasures and sins that this world had to offer. Friends, if you are spiritually dead 
your life looks no different than this fallen world. This is why you must examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Does your life, do your priorities, does your time, does your budget, do your loves reflect someone who loves this world or who loves Christ? Paul says if you are walking according to this, the age of this world, you also belong to the kingdom of darkness. You are a citizen of that sinister kingdom under the rule of Satan. You walk according to the prince of the power of air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now Paul uses the word air to describe the spiritual realm. So we cannot see it with our own eyes, but he tells us Satan rules over every principality who opposes God. Satan is called the ruler of this fallen world. As 1 John 5.19 explains, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So whether you realized it or not, before you became a Christian, when you were dead in your sins, you were under the rule of Satan. You were held captive by your sin, and you served at the bidding of the devil, your master. Think about what Jesus told the Pharisees in John 8, verse 43. He says, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Friends, you can only belong to one kingdom. You can only have one master. You can only belong to the kingdom of this fallen world or the kingdom of Christ. There's no in-between. You either bow the knee to Caesar and to Satan or bow the knee to Jesus Christ. So we must see sin's captivity, but we also must see sin's condemnation. Look again at verse 2. It says, The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience... Among whom, we all lived, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So when you were dead in your sin, you were called, you were called a son of disobedience. You not only were held captive by your sin, you loved your sin. You lived according to the passions of your flesh. The word passions can be translated as lust or inordinate craving. It is like the people of Israel during their wanderings in the wilderness when they craved meat. Do you remember that story from Numbers 11? They so desperately craved meat that they were even willing to go back to Egypt into slavery. They said, oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing while they were in chains forced labor. And this is our sinful state before Christ. Before you were a Christian, we lived according to our cravings and our sinful desires. We are only concerned with what pleases ourselves. Every sin you can imagine in your mind, you carried out in your body. We were like the Ephesians before we came to Christ. We were full of sexual morality. We were, impure, we, we were full of impurity, covetousness, 
filthiness, foolish talk, and crude joking. It was shameful to even speak of the things that we did in secret. Now you will be horrified if we put up a projector screen and replayed every sinful thing that you've ever done. But when you're spiritually dead, you don't care because you love your sin. You cannot live without your sin. You're like Gollum and his precious ring. It is the most precious thing to you and you cannot live without. What gain did you receive? What was there for you when you were dead in your sin? Paul says that you were a child of wrath. By nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now I want you to notice Paul's shift. He shifts from the you to the we. Here he does this. He includes his, himself and his apostolic band. Now he does this to highlight this universal condition, that this condition of slavery, of spiritual death under God's wrath is all of humanity. The moment you were born, you were born as a child of God's wrath. You were born in Adam under the curse of sin. You were born in iniquity, as David said in Psalm 51. You were born worthy of God's unending, unchanging, unrelenting, unbearable judgment in hell. This is the state of utterly depraved pagans, like that Gentile, those Gentiles in that day. This is the state of every person who's born in a Christian family. This is the state of every coworker and every family, family member. Friends, sin is not partial to your background or your passport or your family name. To be human is to be born as a child of wrath. This is the state of every person before they put their faith in Jesus Christ. And this is the state of some of you who are sitting in this room. As Jonathan Edwards once said, when you are spiritually dead, you are sinners in the hands of an angry God. If God should only withdraw his hand from the floodgate, it would immediately fly open. And the fiery floods of the fierceness and wrath of God would rush forth with inconvincible fury. And it would come upon you with omnipotent power. And if your strength were 10,000 times greater than this, yea, 10,000 greater than the strength of the stoutest, sturdiest devil in hell, it would be nothing to withstand God's wrath. The bow of God's wrath is bent, and the arrow made ready on the string. And justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow. It is nothing but the mere pleasure of God right now without any promise or obligation that keeps that arrow from being made drunk with your blood. Friends, if you're not a Christian, this is your state before a holy God. Beloved saints, this was your state before you became a Christian. This was your condition. You were a sinner in the hands of an angry God worthy of his full judgment and wrath. 
forever. So first, we must remember the wretchedness of our sin. But second, we must behold the riches of God's grace. Two of the most marvelous words in all the Bible. But God. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Now, anytime you go into a jewelry store, you'll notice that the employee will lay down a black cloth on the counter. He does this so that if you're trying to buy a diamond, you can see the beauty and clarity of that diamond. The black cloth serves as a backdrop to help contrast the sparkling preciousness of that gem. This is what Paul's doing here. He's laying the black cloth of our depravity so that we might behold the splendor of God's grace towards sinners like you and me. First, Paul shows us the riches of God's heart towards us. Look again at verse four and five. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Friends, God is rich in mercy. The word mercy here can be translated as pity, but it's so much more than pity. One lexicon describes mercy as a readiness to help and bring relief to those who are in trouble. It is a kindness towards those who are miserable and afflicted and is moved to action. Now, if you ever travel to the United States, you will find homeless men living under the highway overpass. And when you see them from afar, it's not hard to pity them. They look miserable and afflicted. Their clothes are old and worn out. They are dirty and they reek of foul smells. They do not have a home or anyone to help them, or so it seems. They are poor, needy beggars. But when you draw near to them, you begin to learn more about them. It becomes apparent that these men are homeless because of their own choices. You see, they actually do not want your help. They like where they are. They want to stay homeless. All they want is your money so that they, so that they can go spend it on drugs and alcohol. So as you learn more about them, you quickly use pity and compassion and mercy. But it's not our sinful state. Much dire than this. Praise God that he is not like us. Though you were dead in your sin, God's mercy is not limited by the stench of your rebellion. The last time I checked, you cannot get any poorer than being dead. If you are dead, you have absolutely nothing. You own no property, you have no bank account, you have no paycheck, and yet this is our spiritual state before God. We are spiritually bankrupt, unable to give God anything that will atone for our sins. The only thing that you and I deserve is a full payment of God's wrath. But God is rich in mercy. He chooses out of his free will 
to lavish his grace and mercy upon us. He did this by giving his only son. Jesus Christ took your debt on the cross so that you might receive the riches of his grace. As that song we just sung a moment ago, marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount at poured, there where the blood of the lamb was spilt. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. God is rich in mercy. His grace is greater than all our sin. He's rich in mercy, but he also greatly loves you. He also greatly loves you. Look again at verse four. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. This word great is often translated as much or many. Like his mercy, God's love is abundant towards you, Christian. In fact, the scripture often connects mercy and love together. So listen to Psalm 103, verse 10 to 13. God does not deal with us according to our sins, nor pay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. So you want to know how great his love is for you? It's as high as the heavens are above the earth. It's immeasurable. Paul later says in Ephesians 3.18 that his love, the love of Christ, cannot be comprehended. You cannot comprehend the surpassing knowledge of the breadth and length and height and depth of his love. It's immeasurable. It's incomprehensible. You cannot fully get your brain around God's love for you. We know that God is eternal, so his love is eternal. It is never ending. It is never failing. It is never changing, and it is always faithful. What is amazing is that God chooses to love a bunch of wretched sinners like you and me. Grace Church, there was nothing lovely about you. There's nothing good or lovely to make him want to love you. You are a rotting corpse headed for hell. But God sent, set his love upon you simply because he is God. Simply because he determined before the foundations of the world to love you. Think about that passage that Pastor Samson read from Deuteronomy 7.7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of peoples, but it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. God loves you in Christ, Christian. Do you believe that? That though you are, were dead, God loved you. You know how we can know that? By looking at the cross. Remember that God has already demonstrated his great love for us. Even that while you were a miserable sinner, Christ died for you. Romans 5, verse 8. The only place that we can 
truly comprehend God's great love is to look at the cross. It is at the cross where Jesus died for the penalty of our sin. It is, where, it is at the cross where Jesus became sin so that we might know his forgiveness and love. It is at the cross where Jesus bore God's judgment reserved for us. So what do you do when you're burdened by your sin? You look to the cross. Many of us struggle with assurance because we spend so little time meditating on the cross. Yes, we should think about the sinfulness of sin. You should see your wretched state apart from Christ. You should see how it is a foul stench before God. But you'd also see the marvelous mystery of the cross that God himself would stoop down to earth and be nailed to a tree for your sake. That he would take all of the punishment for your every evil thought and wicked deed upon himself. Oh, we should always come to the cross to behold the grace of Jesus Christ. It's only at the cross where you can find forgiveness. It's only at the cross where you can walk in repentance. It's only at the cross where you can have assurance and comfort and know his great love for you. So if you're struggling with assurance this morning, think deeply about the cross. Take your eyes off yourself and your filthy rags and turn your eyes to Jesus Christ. So we see God's heart but we also see God's work. Paul shows us the infallible greatness of God's work towards us. Look again at verse four. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Notice the work that God does. You are dead. God makes you alive. This is the only way that sinners can receive his mercy and love. God must give you spiritual life. The one who spoke creation into existence is the only one who can raise you from the dead. You must be born again. Just as Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, 3. This is what theologians call the doctrine of regeneration. Now, maybe you're thinking, okay, I understand this. I need to be born again. But how can I be born again? It's in Christ. It's only in Christ. Did you notice that from verse 4? You are made alive together with Christ. You are seated with Christ. Christ in the heavenly places, in Christ. Paul speaking of the Christian spiritual union to Christ. The best way to understand our union to Christ is to think about the gift of marriage. So turn with me to Ephesians 5.28. And Paul helps us think about what it means that we are united to Christ. Here, Paul gives instruction to husbands how they are to love their wives. And he does this by pointing to Christ in the church. So that husbands should love their wives in the same manner as Christ loved the church. 
In marriage, a husband and a wife are joined physically together. They become one flesh. Such that when a husband denies himself and loves his bride, the text says that we love our own bodies. So look at verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So just like a husband and wife become one flesh, it is a mystery. But Christ is united, or we, the church, are united to Christ. We have a spiritual union with him. Here, when he's talking about the church, he's talking about the universal church, made up of every believer. This is why we're called the body of Christ. He is the head. We are his members. And just like when you get married, all of his stuff becomes hers, and her stuff becomes his, so it is with Christ. Friends, the moment you believe in Christ, your sin is credited to Christ, and his righteousness is credited to you. He took your death penalty so that you might receive his life. His victory over sin now becomes your victory over sin and death. We see this parallel in Ephesians 1.19 in our passage. So later, go, go read Ephesians 1.19, and you'll see the parallel between God working towards Christ and raising him from the dead and God working towards us. It is only in Christ when you repent and believe, you are united to him. You died with Christ. You raised with Christ. You've been seated with him in the heavenly places. His, his resurrection from the grave becomes your resurrection. His standing before God becomes your stand standing. His inheritance becomes your inheritance. We see from other parts in Ephesians that this is a work of the Spirit. We are raised spiritually and we're given the Spirit as a guarantee of that future inheritance, that one day when our bodies will be raised from the dead. So here Paul's talking, a spiritual, talking about a spiritual union, a spiritual resurrection. God made you alive, Christian, even when you were dead. God raised you up and seated you in the heavenly places. You know that you, in some sense, are seated with Christ right now in the heavenly places. As Christ rules and reigns, so shall you. It's so guaranteed, Paul uses the past tense. You're seated. It's guaranteed. One day you will rule with him forever. And why does God do all of this? Why does he make sinners alive and raise them up and seat them with Christ? Look at verse 7. So that, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. At one time, you were dead in your sins. You were bound for eternal damnation in hell. But God, being rich in mercy, set his love upon you. His only son died for you. He raised Christ and seated him in the heavenly places 
and he sent his spirit to resurrect your dead heart. He made you alive. He raised you. He seated you with Christ. And he did all of this so that, did you see that purpose statement? So that in the coming ages, God might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. Friends, the moment you believe, you are always and forever under God's grace. You are always and forever under his smile. There's nothing you can do to change that. There's no sin that you commit can commit that can separate you from the love of Christ. You are destined for wrath, but God has lavished you with his mercy when Jesus Christ drank every drop of his judgment. He does this so that you might know his immeasurable riches for the coming ages. That means for all eternity. Forever and ever and ever. Though you are destined to be in the place where the worm never dies and the flame is never quenched, you are bound for unending weeping and gnashing of teeth. Though you deserve nothing but hell, God has determined out of his free grace and mercy, he has determined to lavish you with the abundant riches of his grace from eternity to eternity for all eternity. Forever and ever and ever. Because what God has done, you are bound for that new Jerusalem, that promised land, that heavenly home, where God will make his dwelling with us. He indeed will wipe away every tear. Sin and death will be no more. And all you will ever know from now and forever is God's grace. Now Paul labors in the first seven verses, he labors to show the depths of your sin and the glory of his grace for a reason. He does this for a reason. We see that in verse 8 to 10. Finally, you must know the purpose of God's salvation. The purpose of God's salvation. Now, there are two things, two applications we can see in this text. He wants to humble you, Christian. And number two, he wants to motivate your good works. So let's first think about how God's salvation should lead to humility. Look at verse 8 to 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Now Paul summarizes everything he has said to this point with that one Glorious statement. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. For by grace, God saved you. It's only by his grace that God saves you. But here, unlike verse 5, he adds that all-important phrase, through faith. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. Now, what is faith? Well, the Westminster Catechism states that faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation and he is offered to us in the gospel. So faith is to believe what God says is true. Faith is to agree with God's assessment of your sin and your spiritual condition and is to trust 
and God's free offer of forgiveness in Christ. Faith is the instrument by which we receive all the glorious benefits of Christ's atoning work. And what does Paul say about this faith? It is a gift of God. It is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, so that no one, not a result of works, so that no one should boast. Paul could not be any clearer. Your salvation, including your faith, is a gift. Your salvation, including your faith, is a gift of unmerited grace. It is not your doing, Christian. There is nothing you have done or anything you can do to add to his work. All of salvation from regeneration to sanctification to final glorification is a work of God, period. But how often do we act as if it must be our work? It must be our good works. How often do you put your identity in how well you are doing? How good you are at fighting your sin? How mature you look before others? How well you do that Bible study? Friends, all this is a form of pride wrapped up in Christian packaging. As John Murray said in his book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, self-confident moralism promotes pride, and sanctification promotes humility and contrition. Self-confident moralism promotes pride. That's doing things in your own strength. That's doing things boasting in your ability. You know how corrupt we can be? Even when we are, we are given into sin, we still can be tempted to boasting. We can still be tempted to self-confidence and pride even after we've committed a grievous sin. So just think about it. Think about the last time you sinned. What did you do to make things right? What did you do to make things right? Maybe you went and asked for forgiveness from that person, or you took them out to eat and said, I I'm sorry, I really love you. Maybe you tried to get your act together and vowed, I'll never lust again. Maybe you get an accountability partner, or you just need to read another book with a brother or sister. You do and do and do and do and do to try and cleanse your guilty conscience. But did you run to the cross? Did you freely and eagerly confess your sin to God? Did you believe that God is able to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness? Anytime, anytime you sin, and you run to good works to soothe your conscience, that's an act of pride and self-boasting. Maybe some of you struggle with feeling condemned because you're, struggling, you're trusting in your own righteousness. You want, to be made look, you want to be made look good before others. You want to be made, look to, you want to be made to look good before God. But the cross of Jesus Christ destroys all boasting. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, 
or I die. Beloved Grace, Grace Church, you must come to the cross each and every day. And you know how we do this? We do this by reading the scriptures. We do this by reading the scriptures. We allow God's word to expose the depths of our sin, and we meditate on God's word. We meditate on his promises. We meditate on his truth. We behold the riches of his grace as we read and think deeply about what God has done despite your sin. You must make the cross your only boast. Paul says boast only in the cross. Now friends, if you are not a Christian, you are currently dead in your sins. You are under the wrath of God. And there is nothing you can do to save you. There is no good work that you can offer to God to pay for your sin. You must be born again. You who are dead must be made alive. The only thing you can do, and the only thing that God requires of you, is to confess your sin and to trust in God's work. Jesus died on the cross and rose again so that you might have eternal life if you believe. So I plead with you, do not let this day pass you by. As Jonathan Edwards once said, How un however unconvinced you may be now of the truth of what you hear, by and by, one day, you'll be fully convinced of it that day when you're in hell. You have no reason to wonder that you are not already there. But here you are in the land of the living and in the house of God. You have an extraordinary opportunity, a day wherein Christ has thrown the door of mercy wide open and stands in calling and crying with a loud voice to poor sinners like yourself. Repent and believe in the gospel. Friends, if you're not a Christian, Repent of your sin and trust in Christ alone. He is able to cause you to be born again, and he alone can save you. So we see that the cross work of Christ kills boasting. When we look at God's grace towards sinners like us, it kills our pride. So what should we do then? Should we be slothful in our pursuit of godliness? Should we be slothful in our pursuit of good works? By no means. Rather, it's God's grace, his work in us, that should motivate and spur us on to good works. Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The reason we should pursue good works is so that we might not boast in our ability, but boast in God. We might boast in God. Christian, you are God's workmanship. You are his creation. Now we know that God has created us. He has made us so that we might glorify him and enjoy him forever. We see that creation design back in the Garden of Eden. We see this in Adam, 
who God tasked to work and keep the garden. We see that work itself is not sinful, but it's only after the fall that work was cursed. So as sinners, all of our deeds are tainted by our sin. All of our labors are stained with the mark of our iniquity. The only way we can please God is in Jesus Christ. Did you notice that in the text? We are created in Christ Jesus for good works. So when Paul says that we are his workmanship, he is talking about God's work of redemption in you. He's talking about God's work of salvation in you, what God has done in you. See, Paul labors to show the depths of our depravity and the riches of God's grace so that we might live in a manner worthy of our calling. If you are a Christian, you are a living and breathing trophy of God's grace. Just look around the room. There's nothing good that any of us have done. There's nothing that we deserve God's grace. There's nothing we've done to earn it or merited it. All of us who are Christians are living and breathing trophies of his grace, his work in us. When a Christian trusts in Christ and by faith says no to sin and yes to God's commands, you know what that does? It makes God look glorious. It makes God, not you, God look glorious. He made you to pursue good works so that you might glorify him. He saved you for good works so that he might receive the glory and the honor and praise. He saved you so that you might live like his son. He adopted you as a son. He gave you a place as a citizen of God. Why? So you might live like sons and daughters of God. So you might live and be conformed to the image of Christ. This is what Paul calls the obedience of faith. It is only by faith that we are saved, and it's only by faith that we can do anything good. It's not faith in us. It's faith in Christ. It's faith in God's grace. It's faith in God's work in us. This is what God has planned all along. This is God's amazing plan for you and for me if you are in Christ. Did you notice that at the end of verse 10? He says that you are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Just think about this. Before the foundations of the earth was laid, before creation, before he spoke one star into existence, God had already planned. He had already prepared beforehand that he might save you from, his iniquity, from your iniquity and that you might walk in good works, that you might walk in obedience, so that you might honor him with your life. He purchased you so you might glorify God with your body. As Paul explains in Ephesians 1.4, God chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Holy and blameless before him. A holiness without which no one will see the Lord. 
Friends, if you do not like Christ's commands now, you will hate heaven. If you do not like obedience to God's word, righteousness and holiness, you'll hate to be in God's presence. You'll hate to be around the redeemed. Now, some of us, when we think about heaven, have a skewed view. How many of us think about heaven and we think, oh, it's gonna be great. We're gonna sit on golden armchairs and do nothing. Rest and relax for all of eternity. But God has told us, just like the Garden of Eden was a foretaste, it's a foreshadow of that heavenly home. God made you to work, to work now and to work for all of eternity. He has made you to do good works of discipleship, to do good works of denying yourself and doing the dishes for your spouse. He has made you to be one who is eager and zealous to talk about him in the workplace. He has made you so you might honor him in all that you do. He's made you for good works now and forever. So if you're struggling with motivation, if you're tempted to laziness, then what should you do? You should look upward. You should look to heaven and your heavenly home. You should see the riches of God's grace towards you. You should see that heavenly home that you're made for. And you should work out your salvation with fear and trembling as God works in you. Friends, there's a day coming when Jesus will return. May we not be like those lazy servants who are not ready. So get busy in seeking to honor Christ in the workplace. Work hard at home to read the Bible to your children and to pray with your spouse. Find ways to use whatever gifts, talents, and resources you have to advance his kingdom, not for your name, not trusting in yourself, but in Christ alone. This is what you were made for. And indeed, he is coming very soon. May we be a people who hear those gracious words on that last day. Well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your marvelous grace. We ask that you would help us to be quick to acknowledge our sin and to run to the cross. May we be a people who are eager and zealous for good works. We'll be quick to boast in the cross alone. We ask that you'd be pleased with our lives, that you might do great things for your name. In Christ's name.